morning. It's uh, great to be able to welcome you to our service of worship here this morning at uh, Pelsley Evangelical Church. And uh, for those who are watching online as well, you're most welcome. Uh, we're glad to have a congregation in the holiday season. Uh, so thank you for, for being here today. And I trust that you've come with that anticipation that uh, not only will you meet together with the Lord's people, but that you've come to meet with God, to worship him and to know him speaking to you and dealing with you. There are just a couple of things to say by way of notice, and they are that there will be refreshments available at the end of this morning's service, and then we're meeting again this evening at 6 p.m. I would encourage you to come and join with us as we worship God together this evening at 6. Well, we're here to worship the true and living God, And as we begin our time of worship, I'm going to read a few verses from the beginning of Psalm 105 that are an encouragement to us to come to worship. The psalmist says, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Let's come before the Lord in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious God, our Father in heaven, as we come to worship you this morning, we're so very conscious that you are the God who is high and lifted up and the sovereign ruler over all things the God who is clothed in majesty, the Lord God who is holy, holy, holy. And we have no right to come into your presence that is of our own merit. But we can draw near to you because you have made the way open for us. And we thank you that that way has been revealed to us in the person of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, our gracious God, we pray that as we seek you for your mercy in the forgiveness of our sins, we know that we have failed and fallen short in many ways during this past week. But Lord, as we come to worship you today, we pray that you would look upon us in mercy, forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, in that very precious blood of your own dear Son. And grant us, we pray, the help of God the Holy Spirit that we might worship you aright in a way that is pleasing and honouring to you. Gracious God, draw near to us, we plead, as we ask these mercies in our Saviour's name. Amen. Well, the psalmist said to us, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. And we're going to do that as we sing our first hymn, Let the Earth Resound with Songs of Joy. Let's stand together to sing, and we're very grateful to Gareth and and Peter in a rather diminished music group for leading us this morning. Sing up and sing well. Who 
take your seats. We're going to hear a reading from the scriptures now as we continue to worship the Lord in the hearing of Hebrews chapter 11 and the first six verses. And uh, Diana is going to bring the reading for us. Thank you. Hebrews um, chapter 11 verse 1 to 6. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. 
By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is the word of God. As many of you will know, Hebrews chapter 11 is a gallery of people of faith from the Old Testament times. And sometimes our focus is upon those people and we marvel at their faith. And yet, of course, their faith is actually only a reflection of the fact that they trusted in a truly faithful God. And we're going to sing our next hymn, which is Faithful One, So Unchanging. Let's stand together to sing. Yeah. 
Please take your seats. Let's bow before the Lord once again in prayer, shall we? Let us pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you truly are the faithful God, the God who is faithful to every word that you have given to us in the scriptures, the God who keeps every promise, the God who stands by his people even through the storms of life. The God who blesses us with a peace that comes from God that passes understanding. And we thank you, our gracious God, that as we come to you this morning, we can worship you not only as the God who is so great and glorious, but also as the one who is our loving Father, the one who knows us intimately, and the one who is faithful to us, truly new every morning, are your mercies, great is your faithfulness. And loving Father, we are so very conscious that uh, we don't deserve such a faithful God when we can be so faithless. But we thank you for the gift of faith that you've given to us, the gift of faith to believe in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, the gift of faith to believe that his finished work at the cross deals with all our sin. And grants to us that deep assurance that has, we're accepted in him. So also will one day we enter into your presence and be with you throughout all the ages of eternity. 
to rejoice in your glorious presence. Father, we thank you for these precious things. And we thank you, Father, for the first day of the week, the day on which we remember that the Lord Jesus is not only raised from the dead, but that he's ascended on high and that he's seated at your right hand and that there he intercedes for us. We thank you that it's on this day that we can especially remind ourselves of your great goodness and grace. And so, Lord, we pray that your blessing would rest upon us throughout the whole of this day, that it really would be a day of benefits to our soul, especially in the hearing of your word and in the things that you have to say to us today. Grant us, gracious God, when we leave this place a little later to go home with that uh, voice in our hearts reminding us that we've heard you speaking to us and that we're so thankful for the word that you have shared with us and in which you have helped us and encouraged us. And loving Father, as we give you thanks for these things, we're so very conscious that we have many brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who don't know these privileges because it's so very difficult for them to meet together with others. And Lord, we think of that land of Afghanistan this morning. We know that there are only a very few believers in Afghanistan and many of them are poor, uh, some of them are uh, illiterate, uh, many of them scattered in different parts and who have little opportunity for fellowship and encouragement apart from those things which they're able to access via the radio or via the internet. And Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in that troubled land at this present time. We know that there are those who are trying to escape Afghanistan. There are others who are just seeking you for the protection that they need in the face of the many threats that there are. And so, Lord, we lift them before you. Pray that you would guard, protect, and keep them. Pray that you would work in miraculous ways to watch over your people and that you would grant them the assurance that however much they may be hated and despised, they are loved by you, they are remembered by you, and they're held securely in your hands. And Lord, we know that that's a situation that is true for believers in other countries too, and we remember them before you this morning. Loving, gracious God, we pray too for those in our own fellowship who are unable to be with us this morning. Uh, we think of those away on holiday and we pray for your rich blessing to be upon them. And we especially remember our pastors, Tim and Steve, that during their time away, that they would be greatly refreshed in their soul and renewed so that when they return, they can come back to fulfill their ministry strong in the Lord and in the power of your might. But Lord, we know that there are others who can't come because they're unwell. And gracious God, we commit them to you. Some who've been unwell for quite some time. And Lord, we know that it's a great sadness to their hearts that they can't be with us this morning. But Lord, we pray that you would uphold them and strengthen them and also those who care for them. And we pray for those, loving Lord, who've recently been diagnosed with significant illnesses that, Lord, you would be merciful to them too and pray that you would grant guidance and wisdom to those who are seeking to help them in the medical profession. But most of all, Lord, we pray that your good hand of grace would be upon them 
and that, Lord, it might please you to heal them and restore them. We want to pray, especially this morning, for Mary Field, who had planned to come to church and yet has had several falls and is clearly not well. Lord, we pray for her and ask, gracious God, that she'll be conscious of your peace in her heart at a time when she's bound to be anxious. Lord, be gracious to her, we pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we do pray too for the young people of the church, for those here this morning, those who are away on holiday, and some of them facing big changes when they come back as the new academic year starts. Changing classes, some changing schools, some moving on from school. Lord, we pray for them. Ask, Lord, that in these times of transition, which can be a cause of worry and anxiety to them, that, Lord, you would encourage them to seek your help and your grace to be able to stand firm and to trust you to go before them and to watch over them, to keep them and protect them. We pray, too, for the teachers in the fellowship as they prepare to go back to their work. Lord, there are many things that they have to prepare and perhaps many uncertainties about how the coming term is going to unfold. And so, Lord, we pray for your grace for them, too, and wisdom in the plans and preparations that they make. We ask, Lord, especially that they'll be able to bear a faithful testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ before their students, amongst their colleagues, and to the parents of whose children they are taking care. And so, loving Father, as we think of those in the teaching profession, we thank you, Father, that we can ask of you now to be our teacher through your word, by the Holy Spirit. Lord, open your word to us. Grant us to hear what it is you have to say to us and to receive your word as it truly is the word of the living God. And Lord, we ask all these things as we bring our praises in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if you'd turn in your Bibles with me once again, uh, this time to the Gospel of Luke uh, and the, ch- the seventh chapter, Luke chapter 7. We're going to read the first 10 verses, Luke chapter 7 and the first 10 verses. If you're using a copy of the Blue Bibles, it's page 1035. And if you're using a copy of the large print Bible, it's page 1600. And four, and you'll find that the, the heading uh, in your Bible is the faith of the centurion. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. So let's hear the word of God. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, and the all this is what's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain, Uh, which is recorded in the previous chapter, though just as easily could have been actually another rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. But whichever it was, after he'd finished speaking to the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. 
So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. And we thank God for his word. And we trust that by the help of the Holy Spirit, the scriptures will be opened up to us shortly. Before we do that, we're going to sing once more. I will stand on every promise of your word.
Well, can I ask you to turn once again to that passage, Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at those first 10 verses. And uh, we're going to be thinking about the faith of the Capernaum centurion. And uh, if I can get this wonderful gadget to work. Ah, that's because I've picked up the wrong one. There we go. The faith of the Capernaum centurion. And our text is found in verse uh, 9. I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And our theme this morning is going to be the evidence of great faith. Now for the sake of the, the children who are here this morning, I've got perhaps slightly extra slides than normally is the case, um, <clears throat> including the odd picture. Uh, so I hope that will help you to engage, and I'll try and make sure that I engage with you in what I'm saying. We're going to be thinking about a character from the Bible, uh, a character who is absolutely fascinating, and there's a lot that we can learn from the way in which God deals with this person. But I want to start by asking you a question. Whatever your age is this morning, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be remembered? Sadly, we've had a number of funerals, haven't we, in the life of the church? Since Rita and I came to Pelsall and joined the church, I think there's probably been three, if not four. And I know that that has not been typical of the years that have gone by, but it's a reminder, isn't it, to us that our time passes and then we're a memory. And how will we be remembered? 
Of course, there are sports personalities who seek to be remembered for their great feats in sport. Uh, Adam Peaty, apparently, trained as hard as he did and committed himself to his sport of swimming so much because he wanted to achieve sporting immortality. And that's not a commentator's reflection on him. That's what Adam Peaty said about himself. He wanted to achieve sporting immortality. In other words, he wanted to be remembered forever. And that was why he wanted to shatter world records so that he would go down in the record books and never be replaced. Other people get honoured in different ways. I understand that Professor Sarah Gilbert, who has been one of the leading scientists in the development of the COVID vaccine, has been honoured by having a Barbie doll prepared in her image and likeness. So she will have something to be remembered by for the years to come. I don't know whether I'd want to be remembered by a Barbie doll. Maybe you don't either. But nevertheless, we get remembered in all sorts of ways. But I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind this morning as we think about this centurion and the fact that he's remembered in the scriptures, even though we don't know his name, as a man who had great faith. Now, it might be helpful to think a little bit about what a centurion is like. You probably know that they were officers in the Roman army. They were generally responsible for about 100 fighting men. It wasn't always exactly 100, but you can guess where the, the name centurion comes from by it being around about 100. Uh, and they would probably be the equivalent of the regimental sergeant major in rank today. The Roman writer, Vegetius, described a centurion in this way. Listen to this description. <clears throat> the centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity in throwing his missile weapons, which uh, I understand would have been a slingshot and a spear, and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertise in all the exercises. He is to be vigilant, temperate, active, and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed, and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright. So there you have an ancient record of what a centurion was like. And of course, there are other details that were given by other writers from that time. So we know, for instance, that they were men of impressive physical presence. They were usually over 30 years of age. They were experienced. They were strong. They were courageous. They were skillful. They were usually literate and had good leadership skills. They were strict disciplinarians. They were the kind of men who led from the front. They inspired their men by example. Often they would lead their men into battle and there were heavy casualties amongst centurions. They were brave. They were what we'd call a man's man. Whatever one of those is. But what about this centurion in Capernaum? Well, I don't think he would have been any different in a lot of those respects. He wouldn't have risen to that rank. He wouldn't have had that responsibility, especially for the soldiers who were stationed in Capernaum, 
without having fulfilled the kind of criteria we've just described. But notice the scripture doesn't give us any of those details. It doesn't remember him in that way. It remembers him, both here in Luke 7 and also in Matthew chapter 8, in the following ways. He's remembered for his love for the Jews, his humility, and his great faith. Three things that this centurion is remembered for, and we're going to look at those three things together this morning. The first of them, the centurion's love for the Jews. Now, it may have been unexpected to you that I've picked that up. It may also be unexpected to you that a a Roman soldier had such a love for the Jewish people. The Bible uh, tells us as we read through the New Testament in the accounts of interactions between the Romans and the Jews that there was not a great deal of love lost between them. The, the, The Romans were the overlords. The Jews were the underlings. They were oppressed. They had to pay taxes to the Romans. And generally speaking, the Jews didn't like the Romans. And the Romans, at best, just suffered the Jews and felt that they were a troublesome and annoying people. So it's quite remarkable that this man had a love for the Jews. In fact, we're told that in verses 4 and 5, those who he asked to go to Jesus... And to ask of Jesus help for his extremely sick young servant boy said that he deserves to have you do this because, verse 5, he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So immediately we've got something about this Roman centurion that sets him apart from others. Other centurions, other Roman soldiers, other Romans in general. He loved the Jews. In fact, he loved the Jews so much that he actually built the synagogue in Capernaum. Um, There are actually the remains of that synagogue still standing in Capernaum. Whether it's exactly the the Capernaum synagogue that this centurion built is not absolutely clear, but the foundations do seem to go back a long way, as far back as the house that is credited to have been Peter's house in Capernaum. If you ever get the chance to go to that part of the world, you can actually visit these archaeological sites. This is also remarkable, isn't it? Because the Romans despised Judaism. They couldn't understand its monotheism, one God, when they had a pantheon of gods. And neither could they understand their moral code. Because the moral code of the Jews seemed to be So strict. They had a much more laissez-faire, free, easy-come-easy-go attitude to morality at all levels, especially in terms of their sexual morality. And yet here we have a Roman centurion who not only loves the Jews but builds them a synagogue, which suggests at the very least that he had a respect for Judaism. He respected the fact that they believed in one God. He respected the fact that their moral code, he recognized, was actually better than the code he would have been brought up with in Roman society. And thirdly, 
And although not directly related to his love for the Jews, we can see that there's something different about this man because he had compassion for his young servant. Servants, again, were usually despised. You owned a slave, and you could treat a slave as you pleased. And if they didn't serve a function, you got rid of them and replaced them with another. A little bit like our throwaway society with electric gadgets. But this centurion was deeply concerned about his servant. He was highly valued. It's an indication to us of something very different in this man's life. Is it an evidence that God is already at work in him? Well, possibly. Of course, it is perfectly possible for someone without the grace of God to do good things. Not good according to the standard that God sets, but certainly good by the standards of this world. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. We're made in the image and likeness of God. And even though that likeness is marred and spoiled by our sin, yet nevertheless, you do see the evidences that we're made in God's image in people. They will do extraordinarily good things. But I would suggest to you that these particular things that we've pinpointed about this centurion suggest that he is one of that category of those in the Roman Empire who wasn't a Jew but was a God-fearer. We find them in the book of Acts. These were people who aligned themselves with the Jews, who attended the synagogues, who respected what the Jews stood for, both in their monotheism and their moral code. They hadn't become Jews. They hadn't gone the full hog of becoming proselytes. But they were those who feared the God of the Jews, and were hearing God's word. And the result was that we see God working in this man such that he was living differently to his contemporaries. He promoted their religion. He had a clear interest in them as a people and a compassionate concern for his young servant. You see... When the grace of God is at work in somebody's life, it always transforms them. And you can often see the beginnings of that transformation even before they themselves can confess true faith. And it says to us again, doesn't it? Do those around us actually see the evidence that the grace of God is at work in our lives? Do they see that we've been changed and transformed, that we don't actually go the way of the trends of the culture in which we live, but that we are concerned to live in a way that pleases and honors God? And perhaps I could ask you just one other question as well in this section, and that's this. Do you have any special concern for the Jews? Do you have any special concern for the Jews? You see, I don't think that that is a reminder here in this passage, just that this was something indicative of somebody who lived within Jewish culture and was therefore in a situation where he was drawn towards that. As you read on in the scriptures, you find that the Apostle Paul encourages us to have a heart for the Jew. That God hasn't finished with them yet. 
In fact, God hasn't finished with them at all. He has purposes and plans for them. And as his covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, we should pray for them. Pray for God to be at work amongst them as a people. Pray and support the work that God is doing to bring the gospel to Jewish people. But let's move to the second thing that we've noticed about this centurion, and that's his humility. The Jewish elders, in verse 4, believed that this man deserved that Jesus should do something for him. But that wasn't the view of the centurion. In verse 6, he says he didn't even deserve that Jesus should come to his house. In fact, he didn't even feel worthy, in verse 7, to come to Jesus in person himself. He sends others to speak to Jesus on his behalf. And I would suggest to you that what we have here is a further evidence that this is a man who has been changed by the grace of God. He recognizes there's something about Jesus that means that he actually isn't worthy to come to him. And more than that, you'll see that he refers to Jesus as his Lord. Now that was quite a remarkable thing to do, wasn't it? What was the allegiance that every Roman soldier had to make? It was that Caesar is Lord. And yet here this man speaks about the Lord Jesus as Lord. He knew about the Lord Jesus because Capernaum, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, was where Jesus lived. Matthew, in chapter 4 and verse 13, speaks about Capernaum as Jesus' home, his hometown. So he knew about the amazing miracles that Jesus had done in Capernaum. He knew about the amazing teaching of the Lord Jesus that had been done in and around the area of Capernaum. He knew about the compassionate character of the Lord Jesus. He knew about the standard of life and morality evident in the life of the Lord Jesus. And all of those things had spoken to him. They weren't just things that he'd observed at a distance and were just curiosities to him. They'd really challenged him. He'd realized that here was somebody who was different from others. Different from the religious leaders who lived in Capernaum. Here was somebody who he needed to hold in the highest regard and who he needed to approach with reverent humility. To call him Lord and to ask others to go to him instead of going himself. I wonder how you view Jesus this morning. Do you, on the evidence of what you have in the scriptures about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you, on the evidence of what you've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ has done by the power of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people you know that have been transformed, has it caused you to have that reverent humility 
in your attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That you can't just speak about him as Jesus, but you have to speak about him as the Lord Jesus. Because that's who he is. Whether the centurion at this point in time recognized by using the word Lord, the title Lord, that he was actually referring to Jesus as God, we don't know. But certainly that is what reference of Lord as a title for Jesus came to mean. The recognition that he was not just a man, though he was fully man, he was also And he still is fully God. It's important, isn't it, that we have a right attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That our attitude is not matey. That our attitude is not casual. But our attitude is one that recognizes that he is the Lord of glory. And all power belongs to him. He speaks the word of truth. At a word, he can perform the most incredible miracles, as we see in the passage that we're looking at. But thirdly, and lastly, we're going to look at the centurion's great faith. The centurion's great faith. This is the feature that stands out. It's the thing that, in a sense, the Bible is commending. And it's what Jesus commends, isn't it? You you look at at verse 9. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Why did the centurion have such great faith? Was there something special about the centurion? Well, I would suggest to you that that's not the case. What was the case is that he had identified in Jesus a greatness that was worth trusting. That's why his faith was great. It wasn't so much that he had worked up in himself great faith, but that he had recognized in Jesus such greatness that he knew that he could trust Jesus absolutely. And he knew that if Jesus was but to speak the word, then his servant would be healed. You see, as all faith, the faith of the centurion was rooted in evidence. It was rooted in what he knew about the Lord Jesus. It wasn't guesswork. It wasn't just a general hopefulness. Well, maybe this is somebody who can do something that others can't. He identified in Jesus all the authority and all the power to be able to do exactly what Jesus chose to do and what he commanded when he spoke. And he knew that that authority that Jesus had was an authority that in speaking a word, even at a distance, without even seeing the young man and having a full diagnosis, he could heal him. He knew that Jesus had divine authority. And he describes it for us, doesn't he, in verse 8. You see, as a centurion, he was a man under authority. 
he would have had higher ranked officers above him and ultimately the emperor who when he said that his centurions had to do something he knew he, he had to do it straight away but he also knew that underneath him he had soldiers who if he said to them to do something they would do it straight away and he knew he had the same authority over his servants. If he said to his servant to do something, the servant would do it. So here we've got a man who rightly understands what authority is about. He understands what it is to be under authority. And he knows what it is to exercise authority. And because he knows those things, he knows that the Lord Jesus Christ has got an absolute authority. Because you see, the centurion's authority came from those with a higher rank. The centurion's authority came ultimately from the emperor. But he knew that Jesus had the authority to speak the word himself and what he said would be done. In other words, Jesus was not under a higher authority. He was the authority. He had the authority to speak the word and the servant would be healed. He knew this because the sign miracles that he knew Jesus had performed were evidences not just of compassion, but they were also the evidences of divine power. They were evidences of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. You see, no one had ever performed so many miracles. You don't normally see miracles of the blind seeing. You don't normally see miracles of those who are paralyzed walking. You don't see the dead raised to life. And yet the centurion Capernaum would have been familiar with this. He knew that no one else had ever performed such amazing miracles or so many. No one had alleviated so much suffering. That in these acts of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were not only the evidence that he is God and he is the king of the kingdom of God, but that he was demonstrating what the ultimate kingdom, when it came in, was going to be like. A place of no more suffering, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. You see, the centurion's faith was great because it was faith in a great Lord. It was rooted in evidence, the evidence that he had seen with his own eyes and heard with his own ears and enabled him to take action in confidence. And I want to tell you this morning that that's what Christian faith is like. And I tell you that on the authority of God's word. I tell you that on the authority of the example that we have here of the centurion. It's not the kind of way faith is perhaps more commonly spoken about in society, where, where it's a kind of wishful thinking, a kind of hopefulness. No. Christian faith is rooted in evidence and acts in confidence. 
And Christian faith is rooted in evidence in the word of God. Remember Luke, at the beginning of his gospel in chapter 1, writing to the recipient, the initial recipient of this, uh, of this book, Theophilus, actually said to him that he had searched and studied. He says, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We have sure evidence in the scripture. We see increasingly with the passage of history, sure evidence coming out of archaeological discoveries. And we have sure evidence in the ongoing powerful work of God the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord Jesus Christ at work in this world as people's lives are changed and transformed. Our faith is rooted in evidence. And it's rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because true faith has him as its direction. It it recognizes and responds to God's revelation of himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so such faith will take action in confidence. It trusts God. If you were to take the word faith and make it into an acronym, it would stand for forsaking all, I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. Now you'll notice in the passage here in verse 9 that when Jesus commends the centurion, he also is astonished. We're told he, 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 he was amazed that he'd found such faith amongst this centurion. The only other time in the scriptures when we're told that Jesus was amazed is in Mark chapter 6, when he saw the lack of faith of the people in the synagogue in Nazareth. Interesting, isn't it? That on the one hand, Jesus is amazed at such great faith in a Gentile, And then he's also amazed at the lack of faith amongst a group of Jews in a synagogue. And I think that gives us the clue, doesn't it, to why he was amazed at such great faith in the centurion. Because in a sense, the centurion was working on less evidence. Yes, he'd seen and he'd heard what Jesus was doing, but he wouldn't have had the familiarity with all the history of the Old Testament giving him evidence as to who Jesus is, the Messiah, the promised one of God. That's why Jesus is amazed. With lesser evidence, the centurion believes. And yet so many of the Jewish people didn't believe. And that's why we read from Hebrews chapter 11 and the first six verses earlier. And I close with this. In verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that without faith, it is impossible to please God. The faith of the centurion, we discover in Matthew's account, anticipates the faith of Gentiles from around the world. Tragically, that same faith has not been seen amongst the Jewish people. And yet the remarkable thing is that in the 20th century, 
it is reckoned that more Jews have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ than in all the other centuries since Christ apart from the first. Now that's significant, isn't it? It would seem that God is doing a new thing amongst the the Jewish people. But what we have here is the encouragement that there will be true faith found amongst those who are the Gentiles of this world. Those who do not have the advantages of this great history. Do not have the advantages of being directly descended of Abraham. And yet those who, knowing the evidence set forth in the word of God, knowing the evidence that is given to them by the Holy Spirit, through the word and through their observation of God at work in this world, that they have recognized that they can truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and walk in faith with him. Countless multitudes have come to saving faith in Christ down through the last two millennia. This has all been part of God's great plan and purpose. As it says in Romans chapter 10, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And as such faith is evidenced, it pleases God. It is by faith that we believe the good news. We take it as the truth. It is by faith that we enter the kingdom. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom, that he is the one whom we're to trust and to follow. And it's by faith that we live daily as those who belong to the kingdom and who live to serve our Lord and King. So, has your faith this morning. The scripture says the righteous will live by faith. And remember, this is not a case of looking into our own hearts and examining what we're like. It's actually looking into our hearts and recognizing that the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy. Who he is, what he has done, what he said, what he has promised. Perhaps this morning we need to really refix our eyes upon who the Lord Jesus is and what he has done for us if we feel that our faith is flagging. And if you've not yet come to true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then can I plead with you to look at the evidence that is set forth in the scriptures that you might know him as he truly is And come to trust him as your own personal Lord and Saviour. How do you want to be remembered? Let's pray. Loving and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from this centurion. But most of all, Father, we thank you for the way in which... This Bible account points us to who the Lord Jesus Christ is and that he is the one who is worthy of all our worship, all our praise 
and our absolute trust and confidence because he will not fail us. He is Lord and all authority is given to him. So loving Lord, work your word into each of our hearts and minds according to your plan and purpose this morning we pray as we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. We're going to uh, sing a hymn that picks up on this theme, and it's the hymn, By Faith. Let's uh, stand together to sing, By Faith We See the Hand of God. Shall 
Beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.